0: Welcome to A Little Louder Now, a podcast produced by The Bridge Initiative, an FI 360 project. I'm Tara McBride. In this episode, Alex and I speak with Margarita Chang, a certified financial planner who founded Blue Ocean Global Wealth in Rockville, Maryland. Margarita is deeply passionate about forging real relationships with her clients that extend well beyond a portfolio. She has built a company based on inclusivity, compassion, and authenticity. What you see is what you get. Alex and I wrapped up this conversation feeling empowered and inspired to do something good for ourselves and for our community. Not going to lie, when we talked to Margarita about all the things she's doing, we began assessing how we're spending our own spare time, because if a woman as busy as Margarita with three children and her own successful business can run three marathons in three weeks for charity, we can find the time to do something more too. Let's get to it. Here's our interview with Margarita Chang. Thank you for joining us. We're so happy to to speak with you and I was hoping that you could just start off by telling us, you know, how you got into financial services, what it is that you do, you know, and kind of what what makes you excited about the work that you do.
1: Thank you so much for having me. So, I um so I started out in college on the STEM track. I am going to be candid, physics was very hard for me. Um, And I found myself tutoring my friends in the dorm in economics, statistics, and math. Math came easily to me. And I kind of, I was on the STEM track. And one day I decided after helping my friends that I was going to learn about what business was about. And I found out that I had satisfied a lot of the base curriculum, meaning I took Calculus 1, Calculus 2, Statistics. And I found out that many business majors were intimidated about math. And I realized that I could take these concepts and help people make better decisions, business decisions, and I said, that's it. I'm going to be a finance major. So I started out studying finance and East Asian language and literature. And then I had a job as an analyst. And that job paid very well, but I didn't really like it. It, There was something missing. And so I decided that I was going to continue on this track, but I didn't necessarily know that there was a discipline of personal finance. But I read every book I could about personal finance. And then after I got married, I helped my husband pay off his student loans, his credit card debt. We bought a house. I had my two babies. And I decided that I did have some street credibility. And I'm like, that's it. I'm going to be a personal financial planner. And I, had a, I decided to pivot because I believed that I could use these concepts of um, strong balance sheets Right, net worth statement, and apply those to individuals and the families. Statement of cash flows, your budget in, uh, income statement, and help individuals and the families manage their cash flow. So I admit I was a little bit naive. I'm like, I got this, I can do this. Um, so that's what so my why was I'm the eldest of three girls, my dad is an immigrant or maybe I'm supposed to say was, I struggle with this. He is an immigrant, was an immigrant. And he, he right. told me that, you know, money doesn't buy happiness, but money brings opportunities. And you should never squander those opportunities. Education is an investment. Yeah. And he, remember, I'm the eldest three girls. My dad was born in China. My dad did not say that money's for girls, money's for boys. I don't care who you are. You need to know how money works. And I didn't realize how blessed I was at the time that my dad made me learn how to use a financial calculator and a scientific calculator. My dad made me learn how to read a value in line. And I knew I was going to go to college. And I realized how blessed I was. I knew about life insurance. And we didn't. I didn't necessarily know what personal financial planning was, but I was exposed to it at a young age. And I just wanted to be able to help individuals and families build wealth and preserve wealth. So that's my story. Yeah. So
0: along those lines, do you find that um, that, that experience is unique, meaning not just for women, um, but do you find that particularly as time progresses, do you feel like fewer and fewer people are financially literate?
1: I do. What I didn't realize is how powerful this was. Um, you know, growing up, I I can honestly say, um, you know, I straddled two cultures um, because I am first generation. In fact, I I often say I'm really generation one point five because my dad did not go to university here. My mom didn't go to college here. I had to figure out a lot of things on my own. Um, and I didn't realize how unconventional that was, you know, to know what life insurance was when you're 10 years old, to know how to crack a safe, to know what a stock certificate was. I thought all 10 year old kids had to know how to do this before they went out to play. Like, I, I thought that that was the norm. I really did. And, um, and, now my family was not perfect. My dad, make no mistake, my dad paid taxes. It's just he always procrastinated. And so I never had the chance to fill out a FAFSA because, you know, back then it wasn't necessarily electronic. So we all, I felt like I didn't even know what a FAFSA was. So I want to be very clear. My dad was very compliant. It's just, you know, I didn't know what a FAFSA was. I don't even know if I qualified for financial aid. I just knew I was going to college and we were going to make it happen. We made it happen with employee stock purchase plan. I worked um, and I got free housing by being, um, it's not a resident assistant, but I helped kids um, with their homework as a tutor. So I knew I was going to go to college. I knew I was going to figure it out. So yes, I do think it was somewhat unconventional.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, that's funny. I, I did not necessarily have the same relationship with um, finances and understanding them that you did. My parents didn't have me involved in any uh, financial planning or anything like that not even on a rudimentary level but um, it's funny that you say that you weren't even you were not involved in um, sort of the prep process really of getting yourself to college because I wasn't either and I came out on the other end yeah Mm -hmm. I came out on the other end and I was like oh I have money to pay okay well that makes sense but how do I do this? I <laughs> what is tax?
2: What are taxes?
0: What's a deferral? What yeah. does that mean? I have I have six months to get. So it's just I feel like um, th- there's a disconnect, right? I feel like um, I, I almost and I think that we've actually talked about this with other people we've interviewed that maybe we need home economics and not home economics in the way that it used to be where, you know, girls learn how to cook and balance a checkbook, but it's more of home economics of how to run your own home from a financial perspective. And it's not just for men or women, it's for everybody to understand at a younger age the value of money, the value of saving, the value of budgeting. Budgeting.
2: Yeah.
0: Budgeting. Yeah. Um, you know, the, when I went to college, I remember they have, I don't know how this is allowed, I guess because it was technically off campus, but there would be tables with people selling credit cards or signing kids up for credit cards just yep. along the street yep. um, for an orientation week. And, you know, it was just so easy to like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll get a credit card. I'm 18 now. I'm an adult. And you don't really know what that means. Um, yeah. So I just find it interesting that...
2: Um, you find out real quick what it means. You
0: sure do. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I just, I find it interesting that even though you were kind of exposed to that at a younger age, it's still um, the process of um, situating yourself to go to college that it was not something that you were necessarily involved with.
1: Absolutely. There are so many moving parts. And so, I mean, I think... As I wear two hats here, I'm a certified financial planner, CFP Pro, but I'm also a mom of three. And I truly believe, I Mm -hmm. tell my kids this every day, I want them to be able to know how to manage their money, their time, and their health really well. I've actually added a fourth. And the fourth thing is I want them to manage their emotions well. I think that if you can do yeah. all four of those—your time, your money, your health, and your emotions—you will be unstoppable.
0: Absolutely, I I love that addition of emotions because I, you know I I take yoga and thankfully I found yoga as a way to um, just kind of manage stress and and um, manage my myself better and. I always take something away from a a yoga practice. And one, one time I uh, was practicing with one of my favorite instructors and she said something about how your emotions are like your children. Um, You don't want them driving the car, but you can't put them in the trunk either. So you've got to have them. They have to be present, um, but you have to understand who's in charge. Um, So I love that you've You've included in that management of yourself, not just time, money, and wellness, but your emotions, because I do think that's an enormous lesson that it honestly took me a very long time to learn. So that's that's really fantastic. Um, so why don't you talk a little bit about the work that you do and some of the things that you're most passionate about, and especially some of the things that you do in your private life, uh, Rita, because I know that
2: mm-hmm.
0: you had shared with us that you just recently ran, was it three?
2: Three... Three marathons in three weeks? Is
1: that That right? That is right. So, um, well, I would – so the work I do – so I just celebrated my 20th anniversary in the business. When I entered the business, um, my daughter, my eldest daughter was three, and my son was just six months old. So when I entered the business, remember I said that I I knew I – had lived life because I helped my husband pay his student loans, credit card to bought a home. I had two babies, but I know it's a tough sell for me to be advising somebody about retirement when I'm in my twenties. Right. So mm-hmm, I felt like right. I had to really work hard to prove myself. So entering the business was not easy because a lot of people would look at me and they would say, well, you can't be successful. You have these kids. I've never seen anybody mm-hmm. successful with these kids. Now, I would not let me that, that deter me. In fact, I actually did joke around. I said, well, you should be glad they're here because I don't have to stop and get pregnant. They're not going anywhere. I just, I'm, like, no, I'm serious. <laughs> I, I did say that. They're here they're not going anywhere. I have to figure out how to be successful and make this business work for me. So I decided that I care very much about relationships. I didn't really have much of a natural market. so you know what I did uh, my manager sat me down and said, "Well, how are you gonna grow your business?" And I said, well, like what about your parents' natural market?" And I'm like, well, I don't think that's going to work. You know, my dad's a decision maker. He's Asian. Asians are very private. And they're like, well, what are you going to do? And I'm like, I guess I'm just going to have to make cold calls. And they're like, really? I'm like, really? I'm going to make cold calls. My first year in the business, I'm here to tell you, I got 33 clients. 31 were from cold calls. margarita Margarita, maria chang made cold calls it was not easy but i told myself that you know what i can't take it personally i just have to have a smile on my voice and i have to make it seem like i really want to be on the phone even though i don't want to be and i just had a good time with it and i was good on the phone um and i always led with planning until this day In this past 20 years, the industry has evolved. But the one thing that I have always stayed true to is people first, their philosophy, their values, financial planning, and then their portfolio, their products. So I always lead with planning. That has never changed. And so that has allowed me to work with clients who are a little bit younger than the industry average, clients who maybe have felt a little bit turned off by stereotypes and perceptions of the industry and I focus a lot on education and the process and that is something that I'm very proud of I've had a lot of people who have come to me and said you no know, Rita like you've taken the time to not only like educate me and my family about our finances but you have taken the time to educate us on, you know, how things work, what it means to be a fiduciary, like different compensation models. And for that, we're like really appreciative. Like it means a lot to us. So um, personally, I just, I really think that even if I am not the right advisor for that prospect, I take my, um, that opportunity very seriously. I think I have a, I take my responsibility very seriously. I want that interaction to be meaningful uh, because I want it to be positive. You know what? I want them to learn something, but you know what? That it, The timing might not be right. Or, you know, I don't want to necessarily do planning. I'm more focused on in portfolio management. Rita might not be the best advisor for me, but gosh, I learned something. And I really take that to heart.
0: Yeah, I I actually um, love that you pointed out process. It, mm-hmm. um, it really uh, hits home for us at FI 360 because that's part of what, um, you know, we do. Uh, teach is that you know the process is really incredibly important when you're um, trying to operate as a fiduciary. Um, but I think I, I like that you take it even a step further. It's not just about setting up a process, but it's about the way that you communicate. And so I'm just curious if you can kind of dig in on that a little bit. You've obviously had some success um, by First, establishing that when you're when you're working with somebody or having an initial um, consultation with somebody, that you you're kind of clear that if it's with me or if it's with somebody else, I I don't you know you need to make that choice. It's your personal choice. But here are the things that I think that you need to make sure to consider as you are trying to figure out who you want to work with and why. Um, how do you approach? um, each client differently, understanding that each of them has a a unique background or, um, a different story, right? So how is it that you tap into that and make that connection so that they say to themselves, you know what, this is this person made me feel really good. And this is who I want to work with.
2: Or this person made me feel really seen and and safe, safe. And, um, you know, my money is safe with them. I am safe with them. My, um, you know I feel represented
1: right how do you do that I mean it's not easy but I think that that's something that I've always committed to so first and foremost when I have a conversation even back in the day when I was a newbie advisor and I'm setting appointments The first thing I say is, you know, the more I know about you, the more I can help, and I would never want to offend you. If there's something I ask and you're not comfortable, you know, you can say, you know, I really don't know, or you know what, I don't want to answer that question. I don't want to put you on a spot. I don't want to offend you. And I honestly think that this is a situation where I am not disrespecting men, but this is actually a situation where women actually excel. People people Mm. have confided in me. And they have said to me, you know, Rita, there's things that like, I am going to tell you because I trust you. I like you. And mm-hmm. this is something that I take very seriously. Like there's people who have like confided in me when they've lost their job. They've told me first, not even their spouse. Like, I just, you know, this yeah. has happened to me. I'm calling you first because I know you're going to tell me I'm okay. Or I just want to let you know that, my boyfriend to propose to me my daughter's in class right now but I want to tell you you've seen me during the most (laughs) difficult times in my life and I never could imagine that I would rebound from this divorce but here I am 10 years later you can't tell so-and-so that like I told you first but she's in class so (laughs) I that like I I feel so um This is not just a job. It's just not a profession. I feel really, um, I feel really blessed. This is my calling. So when I, when I was like twenty-nine years old after like the birth of my second child or so and people were like, Oh my gosh, is it postpartum depression? Like, you know, I just don't really feel like that job as an analyst was fulfilling for me. People were looking at me, what's wrong with that job? Like and I was like, No, that's not what I wanna do. I said to myself, What's the worst that could happen? I could always go back to that analyst job, right? I didn't my teacher's school. I was pretty right. successful. But I just I felt like I wanted to bring my technical skills. So remember I said I was like on the STEM track, right? I was good at math. I was good at science. I was good at analysis. But something was missing. And I wanted to be able to take those that strong technical background and help individuals and families uh, preserve well, I, I should say, you have to grow your wealth, preserve your wealth, and then transfer your wealth.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, I, I love that you have a technical mind, but you also have the emotional intelligence to make connections with people. Um, you know, where do you feel like there are gaps in our industry? You know, I, I still feel like I hear stories about people who, Really don't trust the financial services industry. They they feel like people who work in financial services, financial advisors, are really only in it to make money. Um, and so, where where do you feel like there's a disconnect in our industry that that we're not making the enough inroads with people to make them feel safe and comfortable um, having their money managed by financial advisors?
1: I mean, I, I do I, I still feel like we have a perception issue. I mean, yesterday I was at my alma mater and, you know, there's a lot of people who don't feel comfortable because they feel that finance is just investment banking and they don't feel that finance, when you look at the definition of finance, finance is actually... Supposed to be noble, you are taking capital and matching capital with the need. That that is the definition of finance. But I think that many times people associate that with greed. I think our industry does have perception issues. You're right. What do we do about this? I think that we need to showcase the different career paths within the profession so what i mm-hmm. mean by this is i said i was just at my alma mater last night but i remember that i spoke at a woman's event it was a, an event just for women and it's okay a lot of people say well why do we have events just for women I think it's important that we have a safe space for women to ask questions to other women. We're not excluding people, but sometimes we do need to have a place for people to ask these questions. And this one girl messaged the facilitator and said, I almost left business school because I didn't think I fit in because I didn't think that you could actually be a caring, empathetic person and have a degree in finance at the same time. Hearing Rita speak made me think that I actually can belong. And it's stories like that that actually, you know, inspire me to put myself out there. It's not even so much that I think I'm so great because I've actually struggled with that myself. Um, There was Mm -hmm. a period in time where people told me, they said, you know, Rita, you are very smart. You really are. You're technically sharp, but you really may want to reconsider this profession because you are horrible at sales. You spend way too much time like building relationships, asking questions. And I didn't cry. I was crushed because I was the girl that actually helped coach some of the people on how to understand options. I was also the same girl that broke the seal on their calculator and helped them understand how to do time value of money calculations. Mm -hmm. But yet I wasn't, I didn't fit the model of like objection handling or aggressive sales culture. I didn't cry or break down. I realized that we were both right. For the type of clients that they wanted to bring on, I was not a good match. The manager was correct. But for the type of clients I was bringing on, I was the right match. There was room for us both to be successful. So he was right and I was right. And what's interesting is we were both right. And I think, I hope I've answered your question, is there's many different types of personalities. And not every person is going to connect with that style. The financial planning, wealth management is becoming more collaborative. And when we look at younger generations, not everyone wants to turn over their portfolio and have discretionary, and give someone discretionary authority. They may value a more collaborative, interactive, financial advisory relationship and that personality style um, may be more suited for someone like me right and so Mm -hmm. it really is up to what the client wants you you definitely answered my
0: question Um, and I feel like that leads nicely into where you think there, where you think we need more? Like, what kinds of people do we need in financial services that we don't have right now, or we don't have enough of? Um, we've talked a lot, you know, internally with the Bridge Initiative Committee, um, you know, other staff at Fi three hundred and sixty, and on other podcasts about how how challenging it would be to walk into a situation with all of your money and look at somebody across the table who doesn't understand. Your history, your background, where you're coming from, the challenges that you face every day, and hand your money over and say, "Yep, yeah, I'm I'm going to have you take care of my entire life savings right now." So, where where can we do better? How can we do more? And and um, how do we become more inclusive? Well, I have
2: a I have a piggyback question off of that too. <laughs> um, and my my piggyback question is that you know, do you think that those people that Are um, under not umber underrepresented in our industry? Do you feel that they are, you know, just choosing not to engage, you know, financial services professionals, Um, or are they, you know,
1: just um, not being served well? So I think it's a little bit of both. I think some people, quite honestly, are choosing not to engage for fear. Um, Some people honestly don't feel comfortable. Um, I I mean, there's even people with money who feel um, disrespected. I mean, I'm going to share a, a story with you. It's very important to be mindful of cultural nuances while not stereotyping. So I'm not talking out of both sides of my mouth, but I'll give you an example. So I am, as I mentioned, like generation 1.5. My dad was born in China, but I came to the US by the way of Taiwan. My dad's mom, so my grandmother, her retirement plan was her children. They put everything into their children and they took care of their parents. That's what they did back then. Today, that's not necessarily realistic or possible. So. One day someone came to me and they said, Rita, I need your help. I said, sure. How can I help you? Like these Asian people are crazy. They are crazy. I don't know what to do with them. I'm like, well, let's talk about this. Like I, it's important not to judge. You have to seek first to understand. I'm like, well, let's talk about this. They don't want to stay for retirement. They told me that they will sell their house and live in an apartment. They just want to stay for education. Now, I know retirement planning is important. I totally get it. But where this advisor was having a disconnect is he or she did not seek first to understand that in Asian culture, it's like disrespectful to not plan for your kid's education. To saddle your kids with student loan debt is almost like you have failed your children Now, you may say, well, what do you care what your kids think? You don't understand. Like, you would actually be ostracized by the whole community. So, why is that relevant, Reba? When you're working with underserved or underrepresented communities, you need to take that into consideration because it's not just that you have to deal with the individual family units, you may have to plan for the extended family. And you also have to think about the consequences of the community at large. So I don't think that when people are planning, they um, take this into consideration. Another example is certain people and communities are very um, philanthropically inclined, and there was an example where an advisor was with a couple and said, "You know what? Your whole problem with cash flow is you spend way too much money tithing. It's actually tithing, and if you stop, <laughs> you would get rid of this eight hundred dollar a month expense." Well, the clients, uh, the prospects actually weren't clients who were extremely offended. Come to find out there were other ways in which they could help this couple. They could help the couple adjust the amount they were withholding from their paychecks because they were actually getting sizable tax refunds. The other thing is their mortgage was at a much higher interest rate. So there's ways in which they could save money on their cash flow from their mortgage. So I think that it's two parts. I don't think that people feel that they would be served well so that they don't get help. Um, the other thing is um, people just see, choose not to get help. So it's two parts. People like the chicken or the egg. I think it's a little bit of both. Um
0: Yeah, it sounds like um, I, I feel like the the way that you approach your work with your clients is very much how we could we could all approach just life and communicating yeah. with each other in general a little bit better. You know, when you say sometimes people choose not to understand what's going on, they just sort of react to it and say, "Well, this is the way that you're supposed to," you know. This is the way you're supposed to do this. Yeah, this is how all of my other clients do this, so you should do it too. But you're suggesting that um, understanding sort of what's going on behind the actual action Mm -hmm. is is important in order to then approach that client the the client in the way that would be. Best for the way that they need to be served. Mm-hmm. Um, it just it, it sounds it sounds so simple, but I, I think that your point is really important because I don't get the sense that some advisors I don't want to say all, oh, but I feel like there are a lot of advisors who just kind of they're used to operating in a certain way or working with a client that they understand very clearly that kind of comes from the same place that they do. Um, so it just it sort of speaks to how. Um, that idea of bias needs to be recognized and acknowledged and then put aside. And, and the approach needs to be very much about gathering information and having more of an understanding of where somebody's coming from before making recommendations or offering guidance. Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, absolutely. Without question. and I mean, I can even share another example because we talked about investment and savings, but we talk about risk management because to be a fiduciary also means to help manage risk. So, you know, my husband is from Indonesia. Indonesia extended family is everywhere. You know, you don't really buy insurance in Indonesia. Your extended family is your insurance. You don't buy long-term care insurance. Somebody in your family will care for a loved one, right? Life insurance? you die, someone's going to take care of your kid. My husband isn't talking about life insurance. I was like seven months pregnant. I'm like, Joseph, like, I know you don't like to talk about this, but like, we have three kids. If I die, like, this is real, just because we don't buy insurance does not mean I'm not going to die. If I buy it, it doesn't mean right. I will. Right. But if I die in America, like the bank is going to take your house. Like, so I've experienced this in my own life. And I think when I talk about it with my clients, they're like, oh, yeah, Rita, that makes a lot of sense. I'm not rolling Joseph under the bus. I'm just saying I've experienced like his sense of the world. Hey, in Indonesia, you know, my extended family is my insurance plan. I don't really need insurance. It's true, you don't need insurance in Indonesia. I agree, but Joseph, this is America. It's a little bit different. Like we have to plan, and so I think when I share these stories, um, I it's about each client being heard, each client being validated. You know what, Joseph, you are right. You don't need insurance. You're right, but our kids are in America, and we probably do need it in America. And then I can get him to come to an understanding that we do need to plan. And you know what? That makes sense. Like I get it. Right.
0: Yeah. So um, switching gears just a little bit, um, I'm wondering if you can talk to us. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you to get a little vulnerable, Rita. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about? Um, something that you've done um, whether it's personally or professionally that you've failed at and because I mean you're clearly very very driven and very successful and um, of course we want to celebrate that but I think it helps to understand, challenges that you have faced and failures that you've had to go through and the lessons that
1: you've learned. So is there something that might stick out that you could share with us? Oh, absolutely. Um, So I mentioned early on, I was good at appointment setting, right? I I, I could get people in the door. I could build relationships. Um, I'm very good at connecting with people. I would say that's my greatest strength. I I know early on, I was very coachable. I still am. But There was a period in time where I was under a lot of pressure to hit numbers. And I found myself working with people that I wasn't necessarily comfortable working with, right? And um, this is funny, but I did this. I told my manager that, you know what, I put these clients in the reassignment pool. And my manager looked at me like, Rita, what are you doing? I said, you know what? Like, I don't really think that these clients are best served by me because I did my job. I set the appointments and you helped cover me on these appointments and convert these clients. But you sold these clients. And I don't feel like these clients are best served by me because they were sold. And so that is, it took a lot of courage to admit that I was not the best advisor for these clients. And so I put them in the reassignment pool. Um, it took a lot of courage, but it was also very liberating.
0: Yeah. Just acknowledging that um, it wasn't it wasn't quite right. And you didn't, the way you put it, you know, you, you didn't feel like you could serve them to the best of what they deserved. Um, I, it does feel like you're admitting that you're not good enough. But I think to your point, that's not true. It's, there, there's a difference between not doing your best and not being a right fit. And understanding the difference, I think, takes time. Um, but you're right. It does take courage, too, to just admit that this isn't quite right for me or for the client. So we're going to you know, reset on this. I think that's fantastic.
1: And the other thing that oh, sure, the other thing that I, sure, the other thing that I wasn't very good at is that whole objection handling thing. Like, I'm just not a very combative person. Like, that's just not my style. <laughs> so, so how did you how did you overcome it? I just, I mean, I was like, I, I just told my manager. I was like, that's hopefully I've proven myself where I know how to bring people in the door. I know how to (laughs) hit cold calls, right? Who could have ever imagined like margaritas, like good on the phone. And I think that Mm -hmm. I proved myself where like, there's a saying you got to be smart enough to be dumb enough to do what people tell you to do and not question. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think I was, but um, I think that that's a situation where um, I I recognize that I failed at trying to be somebody that I'm not. And it wasn't good for the client. It wasn't good for me. Right. I have to like be the best advisor I can be. And if I'm trying to be someone I'm not, then that's not good for anybody.
0: Yeah, completely agree. Mm
2: -hmm. So what, How soon after that did you come up with um, Blue Ocean? So So That's been in business for about, what, six years now?
1: So I spent 14 years uh, at a large firm. And some may say, you know what, that was probably too long. You know, there may be some truth to that. But I saw a lot of people who probably didn't spend enough time building a foundation. Um, And I saw some people who left... Right around the time of the crisis, I waited after the crisis, so I think my timing was good. Like I I do, I don't think I would have left any sooner, because I left five years after the crisis. Enough time for people's portfolios to recover. Because I think about what it means to be a client. Change is very scary for people, and I, I don't know that I'd want to move either. So I really think about. I'm very empathetic, and I think about what it how i would feel if i were a client and that's always been my guiding my, my north star if you will mm-hmm.
2: what was the one thing that you knew when you were setting up blue ocean that you wanted to do differently than the um you know firm that you were at for 14 years
1: so sure i just I'm based in DC Metro, and being based in DC Metro, I don't realize how lucky I am being so close to CFP board, being so close to DOL, and knowing everything that's going on with regulation. I really wanted to be conflict-free, meaning I didn't want to have to... Worry about proprietary products or things like that. That was very important to me. Um, and by not having proprietary products, that meant that I could focus on um, delivering um, conflict-free, fiduciary-level advice and asset management to my clients. That's great. Yeah, that's a. That's a great answer.
2: It
0: falls right (laughs) in line with FI 360, so we are fully in support of that.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, So I don't know. I mean, Tara and I both know, and you know, Rita, but you you have written a couple of pieces for our upcoming magazine next year. Um, One of which, we've both read both of them. Yes. Um, But one of which talks a lot about um, inclusiveness and... I wanted to know what what's your best advice that you can give to to somebody who doesn't know where to start regarding diversity and inclusion initiatives to 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 start implementing them for their practice or their firm?
1: Sure. So I would say it can be very overwhelming when you think about diversity inclusion. But the first thing that I want to say, is diversity is more than meets the eye, meaning it's not just race, gender, ethnicity, or age. It's also diversity of experience, so military service, perhaps a parent returning to the workforce. It's also diversity of personality and experience. And I think that's really important when we talk about how wealth management is becoming more collaborative. You may have somebody who may not be as ostensibly outgoing or aggressive, but this person can still be a very valuable team member. Um, So I would say that diversity is more than meets the eye. Um, The other thing I would say is everybody's voice matters. This is what I tell people. Um, You know, I think that don't necessarily hire or choose for experience, rather for potential. There are times when I've been on boards for industry associations, um where i have like selected people based on their potential um and it has been very successful people might say to me you know why is that sponsor like on the board as membership like they're not a cfp and I'm like, well, I made sure that I read the bylaws and I checked that we're actually allowed to have a non CFP. Um, I made sure, like I asked, but um, they're good at talking to people and they know people. And I think so. I think that someone who just wants to know where to start, I think that's a good place to understand that diversity is much more than what we see, um, higher for potential and not necessarily experience. And know that everybody's voice matters. Mm -hmm. Absolutely,
0: yeah. So switching gears, just Mm -hmm. uh, just for a moment, you know, Alex and I had brought up earlier that you ran three marathons in three weeks. um, As a yeah, yeah, we we looked at each other like, what are we doing with our time? Why? Why are we such slackers? Um, But I I wanted to take a moment and just kind of explore that a little bit with you and get a sense of why uh, you did it. Um, Why? How you feel. Are Are you still... Are you able to function? Um, and also, you know, I, I think you had mentioned that you, um, you ran it to challenge yourself, but also to raise money for a good cause. And I wanted to see if you could uh, tell us a bit more about that. Oh, my goodness.
1: I, I'm sorry I didn't answer this question, but I'm glad we came back to this. So, um, yes, I did run three marathons in three weeks. So um, I ran the Chicago Marathon on October 13th. I ran the Marine Corps Marathon on October 27th, and I ran the New York City Marathon on November 3rd. So one would say, you know, Margarita, why in the world would you do that to yourself? So here is why I did this. Um, I believe in empowering women and girls, Um, and I coached Girls on the Run for five seasons and Girls on the Run is a program that uses running to uh, teach girls life skills. DC is a very small community. K Street is the center of power and influence, but literally less than ten minutes away is Ward Seven, or Ward Seven and Eight in DC, and there's um, it's an under-resourced community. I put my name in to run the Marine Corps Marathon in 2018, because I said to myself, I know it's hard for me to coach because it's a commitment to coach twice a week, but what can I do to make sure that these girls have opportunities? Because I found out that once these little girls participate in this program, they wear their medal under their clothes for like a week. They feel so proud of themselves. Oh. That is so sweet. I love and that. I started like crying. I was like, you know what? I want every girl to have that feeling. And so I reached out to girls on their run DC and I said, I'd like to put my name in to run the Marine Corps marathon as a charity runner. And they called me, they said, Rita, you're in. I said, great. And I ran it and I raised enough money for 10 girls That experience when I crossed the finish line was so amazing. I've never run more than three miles. I'm like, this is incredible. I decided that I wanted girls in other under-resourced communities to have that same opportunity. DMV is right here. So I did it in Chicago and New York. I put bids out at the same time. They both accepted me. I could not say no to New York and Chicago. So I said, that's it. I'm going to do it. I didn't tell anybody I was doing New York and Chicago. Then 261 Fearless, that is a nonprofit that empowers women They came to host the Marine Corps Marathon in between. I'm like, I can't say no because I'm the club leader in D.C. You know what? I don't need to be fast. I'm not going to embarrass myself. I'm just going to stay strong and healthy. I'm going to run all three. And I decided to challenge myself. I made sure that I didn't embarrass myself, but I made sure I stayed strong and healthy and I ran all three. And I never could imagine that I would run three marathons in three weeks. Um, But if anything, um, the, I only told my, the only people that knew I was doing this was actually my family because I didn't want people to think I was crazy that I was running three marathons in three weeks, even though it does sound crazy. And I said it after the fact. Um, And I think my, particularly my girls, my son is a little bit skeptical. I mean, he's the engineer and he's like, mom, I don't know if that's safe. Like, But my girl was really proud of me. Um, I think my son was too, but he was more like concerned, like, mom, I don't know if that's safe. You're going to get hurt. But my girl's really proud. Um, And I think I am very proud because it's not just what I did. Our charity team in Chicago, 268 runners, you talk about the power of community. We raised almost a half a million dollars. That's impacting a lot of girls' oh lives. And then, I want to clap. <laughs> thank you. That's amazing. New York City, New York City, there aren't as many charity bibs, so our team is a little bit smaller. But we raised about quarter million dollars, and we're bringing the, oh. co- the program to new schools in the Bronx. So... This, I mean, I'm going to say, what I think is amazing, when I look at my feet, you're never going to believe this. I do not have a single blister. So whatever brand socks I'm buying and shoes, like they need to sponsor me because... Yeah, they do. <laughs> you also
2: need to share that with us. Yes. We have a few runners. We do, uh, and <laughs> uh, specifically on the bridge committee. So I'm mm-hmm. sure they would be interested in that.
1: <laughs> so they, yes, absolutely. So I did it because I wanted every the school in the Bronx. We were able to bring this program to a school in the Bronx where 100% of the girls would not be able to participate without the financial support. And so that was really important to me for these little girls to have the opportunity to cross the finish line. And I know like when I'm running, sometimes there's times when I feel like, I'm like, what, what am I doing? Like, I'm so tired at like mile 23, but I'm like, oh my God, I gotta like, get it together. And I'm like, knowing that, like, I'm able to make a difference in the life of a girl um, inspires me to do it all over again.
0: That's a huge difference. Mm -hmm. That is that kind of an impact. And not only it's, you know, there's one thing about raising money or giving money, but when you're there with them sweating and (laughs) maybe crying and maybe bleeding i don't know (laughs) i'd I'd be crying i'd be crying i'd be bleeding (laughs) but i mean you're right there in it with them i mean that's just you're walking the walk and it is so inspiring to hear that kind of a story so uh keep doing what you're doing i'm i'm honored to be able to have a conversation with you that's just really really incredible Um, So thank you. Uh, Switching gears, we're going to have a little fun, right? So I think that we talked about this before the formal interview, Margarita, where we were going to do a little fun with some headlines. So the way that this works, I don't know any of the headlines. Alex looked for...
1: I'm (laughs) so excited about this. She's so excited about
0: this. (laughs) Um, Alex looked for some headlines, and it's all just, you know... Wacky headlines from around the world, and you you and I have to figure out, and it's we each give our own answer, but we have to say whether or not we think the headline is real or if it's fake. So are you ready, Margarita, to play the headline game? (laughs) Here we go.
2: All right. Ready? Yes. Okay. Spanish man builds 60-foot spaceship to visit planet from his novels.
0: Oh. So like in his novel that he wrote there's a planet and he built a spaceship to get there.
2: I'm not sure if I should answer that or not. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if it gives it away or not.
0: It feels so ludicrous that I think it's it's true. Margarita, what do you think? I think it's true. It is true. Holy cow. Who is this person? Do you have any details? I I do have details. I will put them up with the post. Podcast. okay, yeah, it's, all right. This one's
2: crazy, like, he wrote the, he wrote novels, and then he just decided he wanted to visit the novels, that er, sorry, the, the planets that he made up in his own novel.
0: <laughs> you know, I'm going to take Margarita's advice, and I think we need to understand the motivation behind that before I make any judgment. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my oh my goodness, I love it, I love it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> All right, right, here's the next one. Okay. Uh, Belgian scientists successfully grow a modified plant that cannot die.
0: That's fake. Oh my God. I, that sounds fake to me too. I'm saying fake too. <laughs> oh,
1: <good job. laughs> yeah. Well done, <laughs> All right,
2: Here's the next one. Man brings gun-shaped toilet paper holder in at Newark airport.
0: Oh gosh, that sounds real. I'm saying real. I think I'm going to say real. It's true. Oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> I have a picture of it.
2: It's it's crazy. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. <laughs> first of all, it's a toilet paper holder. Yes. I'm not sure why he was bringing it with him, but I mean that's the
0: I mean gun-shaped things first of all you really should not bring anywhere, but that's beside the point. I want to know why he's bringing a toilet paper holder. I agree. with him on a plane.
2: The so. the picture has the toilet paper in the holder. Okay,
0: like a, like a revolver. Uh, oh,
2: geez. so yeah, it's it's really interesting. Uh, we'll put right. we'll put them up. All right. Um. All right. Next one. Uh, crocodile breaks loose on Qantas flight. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think I'm going to say uh, real feel.
0: Uh, I'm gonna go fake. I'm gonna dissent. I'm gonna go fake. Okay, it is real. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Margarita, you've pulled ahead. (laughs) One more. more more. (laughs) Uh,
2: World's first hot dog ATM opens up in Malaysia.
0: But, okay, so my – just a little quick funny side note. My husband does a hot dog tour every year. That's exactly what I <laughs> <laughs> So I'm going to go with real, and I'm sure he hopes it's true.
1: <laughs> I'm going to uh, margarita. You do? said hot dog ATM, correct? Yep. I'm going to say Fake.
0: She's right, it's fake. Oh poor CJ. Oh no, poor poor CJ. No (laughs) hot dog ATM for you. Oh my goodness, I left
1: the crocodile one.
0: That's so great. I I can't wait to read that one. I'm I'm very excited about
1: this.
0: (laughs) Well, before we send you on your way, Margarita, is there anything else that you want to share before we, we say goodbye?
1: Um, Well, I think you asked me to describe the industry in one word, and I would say, it's hard to say one word, but I'm going to say exciting and energizing. I love that. That is such a great way to
0: put a nice exclamation point on Mm -hmm. what has been a really fantastic conversation. So. Thank you again, Margarita, for joining us on A Little Louder Now. And uh, we will see you soon, I'm sure. Hopefully we'll see you at um, the FI 360 conference, actually, in May. We will.
1: Yay. Take care, everyone. Well,
0: thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for spending your time with us. Again, this is A Little Louder Now by The Bridge Initiative. Thank you to Margarita for this great conversation. If you have questions, topic ideas, or if you'd like to join the Bridge Initiative community, email us at bridge at fi360.com. You can also support the podcast without spending a dime by leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, we want you all to get a little louder now.